Hopefully I've got my notes. All right. I'd like to start tonight, have you take your Bibles just like this. And look at it. You can see, you can see mine. And you can tell what side, one side is more more worn than the other side. Is it that way with yours? You know, I've got dog ears on this side and and I've got pages that are kind of not laying flat anymore. And uh, yeah, on the other side, there's still some gold there. Um, And I think it's that way with most people's Bibles. Um, As a New Testament church, there's some um, justifiable... um, reason for that. You know, we are a New Testament church, and we're looking into the New Testament. But on another sense, it is not justifiable. So many times I think it is our bent to look at the scriptures and to say, oh, well, I have two books and one binding, right? I've got the Old Testament, and then I've got the New Testament. And we focus completely on the New Testament at the exclusion of the Old Testament and really view all that's in that Old Testament as something that's foreign, that's passed away, or that's defective. I'd like you to think for a moment about that Old Testament and consider what it's all about, about the narrative. The first few chapters are about creation, but before long in the book of Genesis, it quickly goes to the story of a single family, and that being the family of Abraham. Abraham, and then Isaac, and then Jacob, and then, the, and then Jacob, who God then renames Israel, and they are the tribes of Israel. They are the Jewish nation. They have, uh, Israel has 12 children. And it is from those 12 tribes that the promised land is, um, is populated. Uh, the Old Testament is a story that revolves around Abraham and his descendants, about their relationship with Jehovah, about their relationship to the land, about their relationship to the law. It deals with sacrifice and, and um, uh, both moral and uh, civil law. Uh, and it talks about rituals. Then when you, turn to the, when you turn to the New Testament, that opens up with four Gospels. And, and yes, you know, the story of Jesus, Jesus was a Jew. That's true. And it's true that most of his initial um, ministry was among Jews. But before long, by the end of the book of Acts, the story has turned largely from the Jews and the focus of the Jews to a Gentile, to, to, to the Gentiles. The story is no longer about law, and the story is no longer about the 12 tribes. The story is now uh, no longer about a single family, uh, biological family. The story is now about a spiritual family, which Christ calls the church. From a cursory view, it is very understandable that we might view this book as two stories. Some might even think, oh, well, there's the old covenant. That was God's first try. And it didn't work out, so then he went to plan B. That's completely a wrong way for us to view our scriptures. The scripture is not two stories, but one. 
It's a story about God's redemption of mankind. And it's a story how God restored what, was, what he created as very good to a, to a time where, where all is, in fact, perfect. Tonight we're going to begin a series that will take several months and I hope will serve to dispel the wrong perspective of this book being two stories and will enforce this idea that it is one story of redemption. And the primary way that we're going to do that is by looking to see the second person of the Godhead in the Old Testament. Finding Jesus Christ in the Old Testament. Tonight, we're going to begin, and the title of the series I'm taking from a book of the same name is Beginning at Moses, Finding Christ in the Old Testament. And as I said, it is my intention to show the second person of the Godhead, Jesus Christ. For as we begin to see Christ in the Old Testament, as we begin to see what he's doing and what he's saying, we'll begin to see that the message is a message of redemption. It is very much the same message that he came and lived incarnate that we see displayed in the New Testament. God's first attempt didn't fail. God's promises to the Jews have not been withdrawn. The Bible is not two books, but one. I'd like to begin tonight with a word of prayer. And then we'll have a bit of an introduction and uh, start to get our feet wet tonight. So let's, let's go to the Lord in a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word, for the time that we can open it, that we can uh, study it and read it and be enlightened by it. Lord, we thank you that we can come face to face with our Savior as we look into it, that we can see his glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father. That we can see, Lord, your, your perfect plan of redemption as it is manifest in the person of Jesus Christ, your only begotten Son. Lord, give us wisdom. Help us to understand by the power of your Spirit what your Word is telling us and revealing to us. Lord, some of it is hard for us to understand, yet I pray that you will strengthen us and enlighten us. Lord, I pray that this time might be a blessing and that the first half of our Bibles, the Old Testament, might be of uh, something that is opened afresh and anew to us because of this study. I pray your blessing on this time and that on all things we do and say, you'll be glorified. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. So tonight we're going to turn to several passages. And the first passage I'd have you turn to is in the book of Luke. Luke chapter 24. Luke chapter 24. And I'm going to uh, read um, starting at verse 13. As soon as I hear the pages stop wrinkling around. But take your time getting there. But Luke chapter 24 and verse 13. First thing we're going to consider tonight is how the New Testament corroborates my assertion that Jesus is to be found in the Old Testament. Look at verse 13. The Bible says, And behold, two of them went that same day to a village called Emmaus, which was from Jerusalem, about threescore furlongs. 
and they walked together of all the th- and they talked together of all the things which had happened. This is shortly after Jesus' resurrection. And it came to pass that while they were uh, they communed together and reasoned, Jesus himself drew near and went with them, but their eyes were not holden um, that they should know him. Verse uh, twenty five. Then said he unto them, O fools, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Ought not Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded unto them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Verse 30. And it came to pass, as he sat at meat with them, he took bread and he blessed it and brake it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened, and they knew him. And he vanished out of their sight. And they said one to another, Did not our hearts burn within us as we talked, as he talked with us by the way? And while well, he opened to us the scriptures. Now, as I said, this passage is one of a post-resurrection appearance, as you're likely familiar. Two disciples were on the road to Emmaus, and as they walked along, Jesus unbeknownst to them, uh, because of their blinded eyes, joined them on the path. They discussed the events that had occurred of Jesus' death, his burial. And then they said, some of our, some of our uh, disciples even have said that, that they've seen him and that he's resurrected. Jesus chastises their failure of faith in verse uh, 25. Look at what he says. O fools and slow of heart. What was the primary evidence that Jesus holds up against them? It was their failure to believe all, the pro- all that the prophets had spoken regarding himself. He said, you're fools and slow, you're faithless, because you don't, you don't see me revealed in those Old Testament scriptures. And notice how Jesus instructed them. In in verse 32, it says that he instructed them, he opened to them the scriptures. At this point in the canon of scripture, there was no New Testament scriptures. What scriptures did he open to them? The Old Testament scriptures, that's right. They have the Old Testament scriptures, and Jesus opened those scriptures to those people on that road and expounded himself. They have the the Septuagint, a Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament from which Jesus Jesus often quotes. And that is what he used with these people. And from those scriptures, what did he teach them? The things concerning himself. Verse 27. It's not the only passage. Turn in your Bibles, if you would, to Acts chapter 8. The first we see is from Jesus' teaching. But here, look at Acts chapter 8. New Testament church. Christ has ascended back to heaven. His earthly ministry is, is complete. Now look at Acts chapter 8, verse 27. And it says, And he, and it's referring to Philip. You'll remember Philip. And we'll talk about him in just a minute. It says, And he, Philip, arose and went. And behold, a man of Ethiopia, a eunuch of great authority under Canis, queen of the Ethiopians, who had the charge of her treasure and had come to Jerusalem for to worship, was returning and sitting in his chariot, read Isaiah the prophet. Then the spirit of, said unto uh, Philip, Go near and join thyself to this chariot. 
And Philip ran thither to him and heard him read the prophet Isaiah and said, Understandest thou what thou readest? And he said, How can I understand except some man should guide me? And he desired Philip that he would come up and sit with him. And the place of the scripture which he read was this. He was led as a sheep to the slaughter. Like a lamb dumb before his shearers, so opened he not his mouth. In his humiliation, his judgment was taken away. And who shall declare his generation? For his life is taken from the earth. And the eunuch answered Philip and said, I pray thee, of whom speakest the prophet this? Of himself or of some other man? Verse 35. Then Philip opened his mouth and began at the same scripture and preached unto him Jesus. We have here an example from the New Testament church. Philip was an evangelist and a deacon. He was a man full of the Spirit and listening. You can see even from this passage that he was directed by the Spirit to go and to minister to this man. He is sent on a mission by God to speak to this official. And as he approaches this religious man who had been in Jerusalem and was now returning home, Philip encounters this man as he's reading from the Old Testament scripture, specifically, according to verse 32 and 33, he was reading from Isaiah 53, verses 7 and 8. The Ethiopian understood that Isaiah was speaking about a person, but he didn't know who. Was he speaking about Isaiah? Was he speaking about himself? Was he speaking about some other man? Was he speaking about a prophet? Who was it? And Luke records that Philip opened his mouth and explained this scripture and that it spoke about none other than Jesus. Isaiah 53, which we've studied, you'll know is the passage about the suffering Savior. The identity of the suffering Savior is given explicitly here by Philip as identifying under, the inspira- under inspiration to be none other than Jesus Christ. Philip isn't wrong here. He's telling and identifying this, uh, this Old Testament person in Isaiah 53 to be none other than Jesus Christ. It's, it's not open to question, and, and uh, it's, it's not um, something that we can, we can deny. One more place. Turn, if you would, to Galatians. We've looked at Christ's uh, revelation that he is the one, he is in the Old Testament, um, beginning at Moses. We've seen here that uh, Philip identifies him in a specific place, uh, specifically Isaiah chapter 53. And now, let me show you um, in Galatians chapter 3. And there are many more. I'm choosing just these three places for us to show that the New Testament tells us that Christ is to be found in the Old Testament. Galatians chapter 3, verse 8, says, In the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the heathen through faith, preached before the gospel unto Abraham, saying, And thee shall all the nations be blessed. So then they which be of faith are blessed with faithful Abraham. Drop down to verse 15. 
Brethren, I speak after the manner of men, though it be, uh, be but a man, man's covenant, yet if it be confirmed, no man disannulleth or addeth thereto. Now to Abraham and his seed were the promise made. He saith not, and to seeds as of many, but as of one, and to thy seed, which is Christ. Here, what Paul is saying is that God made a promise to Abraham. It was a promise to Abraham and his seed. Singular, not seeds, plural. Here, what Paul is saying is that the fulfillment of the promise that God made to Abraham came in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Genesis 15, 18 says, In the same day the Lord made a covenant with Abraham, saying, Unto thy seed have I given this land, from the river of Egypt unto the great river, the river Euphrates. There, And that word seed is in fact singular, not plural. Again, Psalm 89, verses 3 and 4, I have made a covenant with my chosen. I have sworn unto David my servant, thy seed will I establish forever and build up thy throne to all generations. And again, the word seed is not plural, but it is singular. Again, referring to Christ. Here, I'm not the one making this interpretation. It is the Apostle Paul telling us that the Old Testament explicitly as identifying that there was to be a blessing through a seed of Abraham. And that seed, singular, is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. Why do you think that Matthew 1.1 starts out this way? The book of the generation of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. It is to make exactly the same point that Paul is making when he quotes that in, in Galatians, or when he, when he makes that assertion in Galatians chapter 3, verses 15 and 16. I've given you three examples. One from the ministry of Christ, one from the New Testament church, and one from the Apostle Paul. The whole, basically the whole gamut, if you will, of the New Testament scriptures, I've chosen one selection from each one of those And each one makes the assertion that Christ is to be found in the Old Testament. Some generally, some in a very specific way. And so I think, though there are some, especially in our contemporary age, that would would find Christ in every illusion and every illustration in the Old Testament. And we need to be careful of not doing that as well. But at the same time, we are justified in looking into the Old Testament And finding the Messiah, the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ in those Old Testament scriptures. So, how are we going to know him when we see him? Maybe I've told this story before, but several years ago, I was working, while I was working at Xerox, I was in my office with two other people. I'll call them Mike and Joe. And someone came into my office and asked the three of us if they could direct him to find Joe. Now, obviously, the person that came into my office had never met Joe, or they'd know that Joe was sitting there right in front of them. But as quick as a blink, before anybody else could say something, Mike stood up and said, oh, yeah, I saw him on the other side of the building. And he sends this 
innocent bystander on a wild goose chase um, looking for Joe, who was, in fact, sitting right there beside us. And, and after the guy left, we, we, Joe and I sat there and we were like, <laughs> we couldn't believe that he had done this. But the point is, if you don't know what you're looking for, you're going to be easily led astray. It's said that bankers and those that handle large sums of money can identify counterfeit bills almost instinctively by the way that the bill feels or the crinkle, the sound that the, the paper makes when they crinkle it. Uh, perhaps a slight color change or a slight pattern change. Things that are almost indetect, not detectable, but somebody that's handled and looked at so many bills can easily identify a fake. As we come to know Christ more closely through the New Testament revelation, and as we, we, we understand not only a description of him, but how he behaves, what makes him tick, we will, under, we will be able to identify him much more, much more readily. When John the Baptist sent rep, uh, representatives to ask Jesus, Are thou the one that should come, or should we look for another? In Luke chapter 7, verse 19. How did Jesus respond to that? Did he, just, did he answer their question? Oh, yes, I'm your guy. No. Remember what he did? He was performing miracles. And he told them, he said, that, um, he said tell, go and tell, tell John that the lame walk, that the blind see that the dead are raised to, to life, that the poor are ministered the gospel to, that the lepers are cleansed. He said, go and tell them all the things that you see me doing, how you see me behaving, the gospel that you hear me preaching and teaching. And so he didn't answer him directly, but he, he answered him with an example. And though his answer seems a bit confusing and elusive, it only does until you consider Isaiah 61.1, where, where in the Old Testament the Bible says, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord hath anointed me to preach good tidings unto the meek. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to captives, the opening of prisons to them that are bound. And he goes on, and, and, and also in Isaiah 51, uh, to describe the very behaviors that he was manifesting are exactly the behaviors of the Messiah that the Jews should be looking for. So too, as we look into the Old Testament, it's important for us to understand who it is that we're looking for, what characterizes that person. So who is it that we're looking for? I'm going to spend the majority of the time that we have remaining talking about who it was that the Jews was, were looking for. And who is that? The, the Messiah. That's right. Turn in your Bibles to John chapter 1. John chapter 1. And I'd like to start reading in verse 36. John 1.36 And looking upon Jesus as he walked, he saith, Behold, the Lamb of God. And the two disciples heard him speak, and they followed Jesus. And Jesus turned and saw them 
following and saith unto them, What seek ye? And they said unto him, Rabbi, which is being interpreted master, where dwellest thou? And he saith unto them, Come and see. And they came and saw where he dwelt and abode with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. One of the two which had heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first findeth his own brother Simon, and saith unto him, We have found the Messiah, which is being interpreted the Christ. Now, the Messiah. The word Messiah is um, a Hebrew word, and the the word um, Christ, uh, and if you, you actually look at the Greek, um, and all you have to do, um, Greek is a very interesting uh, language because all of the letters make exactly one sound. None of this hokey stuff that English does. Um, and, and if you could, you knew the letters, you could actually read uh, the Greek word. It is Christos. Um, just, it just is exactly a, a transliteration. Uh, of the word Christ. Hebrew, the Hebrew term is Messiah. The Greek term is Christ. And they are equivalent, as we see here in verse 41 of John chapter 1. The term literally means to spread liquid over. And the King James uh, would translate this anointed one. And that would be how we would tend to understand it. Although our tendency is to think of the Messiah, 28 of 39 occurrences of the term in the, refer to various kings. For instance, in 1 Samuel chapter 9, verse 16, it says, Tomorrow about this time I will send thee a man out of the land of Benjamin, and thou shalt anoint him to be captain over my people Israel, that he may save my people out of the hand of the, out of the, hand of the Philistines. For I have looked upon uh, my people because their cry is come upon, uh, unto me. That word, anoint him, is the verb form of the, of the term Messiah. Okay, if you, if you go and look at that, it, it, you would you would, uh, you'd recognize that. And you'll see, 20, as I said, 28 of the 39 occurrences actually refer um, to a king. David, in 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 12, Again, the, the term is used of him. The one that has been anointed is therefore, in, in a sense, the Messiah. You'll see that in each of the kings. He is um, one consecrated, one set apart for a special task. A king set apart to rule. Um, other people that are anointed, that are that have this uh, calling or, or of being a, make it a little M Messiah, if you will. The priests, they were, they were anointed as well. You can remember Aaron was anointed and his, his sons were anointed. And so too, the prophet. The priest was set apart to minister and the prophet was set apart to preach. Those three offices, a king, a, uh, a priest, and a prophet, there is, an, there is a sense in which they are all anointed. They are all consecrated. They are all ones that are, 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 are called and set apart for a specific task. Well, I'd like to consider the implications of the term and the position of Messiah. 
for just a couple of minutes because it's really important that we understand what a Messiah is. First, a Messiah was a chosen individual. The position of Messiah was not something that you were elected to. Okay? This isn't something that, uh, you know, there was voting. Um, it was something that God specifically, God himself, cho- chose the individual to. Moses made this clear uh, that, that, um, that uh, for instance, the king of Israel was to be chosen by God. Deuteronomy 17, verse 15 says, Thou shalt, thou shalt in any wise set him king over thee, whom the Lord thy God shall choose. It was true of Aaron, um, and it was a, a very grave uh, error when a man entered into a role that God had not called him to. Remember what happened to Saul when he um, assumed upon himself the, the position of priest. God judged that very severely. So too, the office of prophet was one assumed, but not one that was assumed, but bestowed. If you look at Jeremiah chapter 1, verse 5, for example. So the first implication, the first thing that we need to consider about a Messiah is that they are one that is chosen. Second thing about a Messiah that we need to consider is that they are one that possesses authority. They are not just, a Messiah is not just someone that God chooses and, you know, they're just kind of a figurehead. No, God uh, chooses this man and um, appoints them, whether it be a prophet, priest, or king, to perform a specific office. They have authority to rule. They have authority to preach. They have authority to serve. They, they are a man with authority because God has a, granted them authority. And then third, the third aspect of the Messiah is that they are one possessing power. When the Lord anointed one or more um, in some sphere for service, he supplied and equipped that man with the abilities or the ingenuity to exercise that office. Perhaps Solomon is the best example. When God called Solomon and appointed him to be king of Israel, um, how did God equip him? He equipped him as being the wisest man that had ever lived. When you consider David, uh, God equipped David with with wisdom and with uh, skill and with military prowess. The Lord always supplies the power for the service of that he appoints men to, and the ultimate agent that he uses to bring, to, to bring that power is the Holy Spirit. So three implications of being a Messiah. One, they are called and appointed by God. Two, they have the authority uh, by, by that calling to that position to exercise that office. And third, they have the power to accomplish the office that God has appointed Um, and authorized them too. So now let's consider the Lord Jesus Christ, whether those three things are true of his life or not. First, was Jesus chosen? Did God choose Jesus Christ um, to be be, uh, a Messiah? In John chapter 6, verse 38, the Bible says, 
I came down from heaven not to do mine own will, but the will of him that sent me. Jesus Christ was sent by the Father. He was, at least according to that verse, commissioned. John 17, 3. And this is life eternal, that thou might know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. Again, he was sent, uh, commissioned by God the Father. Interestingly, I think one of the more, uh, even more compelling verses, Hebrews chapter 3, verse 1, refers to Jesus Christ as the apostle. He is the sent one, the apostle of the Father. In Revelation chapter 13, verse 8, the Bible says, And all that dwell upon the earth shall worship him, whose names are not written in the book of life, the, the life of the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. When was Jesus Christ appointed to this task of Redeemer, of Messiah? Before the foundations of the world. The culmination of, of Jesus' mission was at the cross. But the cross was no accident. It was part of God's plan that he had ordained before the, foundation of the, before the foundation of the world. It was part of God's plan that, G, that he had sent Jesus to accomplish. One more verse, Acts chapter 2, verse 23. The Bible says, him, being de- uh, him, referring to Jesus, was delivered by the determinate counsel and the foreknowledge of God. Ye have taken and by wicked hands have crucified and slain. The ministry of Jesus Christ was no accident. It was all within the perfect will of God. He ordained it and he directed it. He sent Jesus Christ, the Bible says, in the fullness of time. God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem them that were under law. And so, was Jesus one that was chosen by the Father? The Bible says absolutely, repeatedly. He was chosen, and he came not to do his own will, but the will of him that sent him. So secondly, yes, we see Jesus was chosen. Was Jesus, did Jesus have authority? Was he accredited Was he given a position and appointed a position by the Father? I'd say again, the scriptures are very clear. Many things reveal that Jesus was a man of authority. The first thing that came to my mind was Matthew chapter 7, verse 28. And it is the testimony of the the apostles and the disciples that were with him as he preached. It says there in Matthew 7, 28, And it came to pass when Jesus had ended, ended these sayings, the people were astonished at his doctrine, for he taught them not, or for he taught them as one having authority, and not as the scribes. His words, his his teaching revealed him to be a man of authority. So too John the Baptist prophetically affirmed his authority. John chapter 1, verse 29. The Bible says, The next day John seeth Jesus coming unto him and saith, Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. John the Baptist recognized Jesus' position. 
It was the position of the lamb sent by God, the lamb who was God. And he came to this world to take away our sins. Again, it reveals that John the Baptist recognized that Jesus Christ was a man of authority. Third, the appearance of the Spirit of God affirms Jesus' authority. In Matthew chapter 3, verse 16, after John had baptized Jesus, it says, And Jesus, when he was baptized, went straightway out of the water, and, lo, the heavens were opened unto him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and lighting upon him. The Holy Spirit came and lit upon Jesus Christ, affirming that Jesus Christ was, the, was God's man, that he was the authority figure. And God the Father also affirms Jesus' authority. In two times, both at his baptism as well as at the transfiguration. In Matthew chapter 3, verse 17, the Bible says, And lo, a voice from heaven uh, was heard saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And as we saw this morning, it goes on and says, Hear ye him. Listen to him. And then finally, the resurrection affirmed Jesus' authority. Romans chapter 1, verse 4. And it declared, and, and declared Jesus to be the Son of God with power, according to the Spirit of holiness, by the resurrection from the dead. Five proofs that Jesus was a man of authority, the man of a position, the man that was the Messiah. Five different proofs. And these are five of likely many more. So we see of the, two, of the three assertions, Yes, Jesus was, was called and, and sent by God, chosen by God. Yes, he was a man of authority. And third, now I'd like you to see that, yes, he also was a man empowered by God to do the work of the Savior. There are many, many things that attest to the power of God that was uh, the power of Jesus Christ. Um, I'll share again just a couple. First, his miracles attested to the works, uh, to, to who he was. Jesus, Jesus said, I, don't do, I have not come to do my own works, for the works, I do the works of him that has sent me. In John chapter 10, verse 25, Jesus answered them, I told you, and you believe not. The works that I do in my Father's name, they bear witness of me. John 10, verses 37 and 38. If I do not the works of my Father, believe me not. But if I do, though ye believe me not, believe not me, believe the works that ye may know and believe that the Father is in me and I in him. The works that Jesus did attested to the fact that he was the Messiah. That was his very assertion there in John 10. And also his death, burial, and resurrection and ascension attest to that. Romans chapter 6, verse 4. Therefore, we are buried with him by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in the newness of life. You could put Romans 1, 4, 1, 4 there again as well, because the resurrection uh, declared him to be the Son of God with power. Jesus was a man chosen by God, Jesus was a man put into a position of authority, and the authority was vested in him by God. And then third, Jesus was a man empowered by God 
to be the Messiah. Each one of these three proofs show us that he was to be the Messiah. Turn, if you would, to Isaiah chapter 42, verse 1. Let me read the verse, and then I have a few questions. The prophet Isaiah said, Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my elect, in whom my soul delighteth. I have put my spirit upon him. What were the three things that, that, that identified the Messiah? First, he's chosen. Right here, Isaiah says, He is mine elect. It goes on and it says, what is the second? That he's accredited, by, uh, uh, that he is accredited. That is, he has authority. Notice here it says, in whom my soul delighteth. And then third, it says, um, uh, the third proof is that he is empowered by God. And there Isaiah says, I've put my spirit upon him. Here, as we read Isaiah chapter 42, verse 1, those three principles come through again. And we know and we understand the fingerprint of the Messiah as we start to see him in the Old Testament. Now, you'll see partial fingerprints in various prophets and various priests and various kings. But there is only one complete fingerprint, and that we see alone in the Lord Jesus Christ. In addition to, the, to this office of Messiah, or, or perhaps arranged under that, prof, that idea, idea of Messiah, are those three offices. For who, who alone is the prophet, priest, and king? Jesus is the ideal prophet. What is a prophet? But God's representative to man. And how does the New Testament reveal him to be as I said this morning, he is the word of God. He is the word, he is, the, he, is, he is a prophet that came from God to say his words, to do his works exactly as a prophet would. He is the ideal priest. He is a priest and is an offering up of himself as a sacrifice to satisfy the, the divine justice and reconcile man to God. A priest after the order of Melchizedek. He is our great high priest. Whoever lives to make intercession for us at God's right hand. John 17. And then finally, he's the king of kings and lord of lords. He is now seated on the, uh, seated on the right hand of the throne of God. He is seated there until all nations are put under his footstool. One day, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. He is defending us. He is restraining and conquering all our enemies. And before him, as I said, one day, every, every knee will confess and identify and submit to the perfect king. So though there were prophets and though there were priests and though there were kings... There is only one that's perfect in all those offices. And that alone is our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It's my desire as we open these Old Testament scriptures and as we begin to look in the Pentateuch 
and as we begin to look in, uh, in some of the Jewish history books, and as we look through the covenants, and as we look through the prophets, that you will start to see the fingerprint of the prophet, priest, and king, the Messiah, the one chosen by God, authorized by God, and empowered by God to redeem all mankind from their sins. You see, God's book is perfect. His plan is perfect. His word is perfect. And his son is the key for us to understand so that this book is not two books. This book is not two plans. This book is not about the Jews and the Gentiles. But this story is about Jesus Christ and about his redemption and about what he did on your behalf when he died on the cross was buried and rose again and glorifies his Father even now. I pray that you will um, prepare your hearts and that this, this series will be a blessing to you and that your eyes will be opened to the glorious image of our Savior. Let's close in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word. Thank you, Lord, that it's perfect from cover to cover. I thank you, Lord, that your way is perfect. And, Lord, that you've not made mistakes. Lord, that you're not on plan B in the New Testament. But, Lord, your plan from the very foundations of the world were to send your Son, your only begotten Son, to die on the cross for our sins, to be buried and raised again the third day. We thank you, Lord, that he is the Word of God made flesh, that he is a prophet that came to call all the world to repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Lord, that he is a priest who ever lives to make an intercession for us at your right hand. And Lord, that he is king and one day will rule and reign with perfect justice. And Lord, that one day every knee will bow and every tongue confess that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Lord, help us to appreciate the Old Testament text. Help us to see through, the, through, through a, a scriptural lens the revelation of the second person of the Godhead in those Old Testament texts. Give us wisdom and give us insight. Help us, Lord, to not go beyond what the scriptures would have. But, Lord, help us to see the image of our Savior and help us to know him more clearly and to love him more passionately. I pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. All right. Let's close with a hymn. Hymn number 59, please.